Amen. Well, uh, warm greetings to you. Uh, it's good to be with you, to worship and to seek the face of God and His glory and His Word. And we're going to turn now our attention to God's Word uh, because we believe that God's Word has something for us, has spiritual food for us, has help for us, has wisdom for what we are walking in right now, today. And that's why we gather each week uh, to hear from his word, and we pray that he would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. We're in a series uh, in the book of Psalms, and um, I do see some new faces. So if you're new, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, hey, back there. Thank you for the wave. Um, we're really glad that you're here. And uh, if you, we'd love to get to know you a little bit, hear about your story. And so we'll be up here. I'll be up here and would love uh, to, to meet you and greet you and hear a little bit about your story. But we're in a series in the Psalms this summer. And this is not filler material for the Psalms where we kind of go light and go to an easy place. Um, the Psalms are weighty. And the Psalms are really important and vital in the Christian life. And they really challenge us to behold the glory of God, to really learn what it looks like to live a life of total devotion to God. It invites us to praise him, to pray, all of these things. And it does so in a really poetic, beautiful way. And there is a really special way that the Psalms invite us into the creative beauty of God and his truth. And we're going to be in Psalm 24 uh, today. And I, I really believe that the Holy Spirit has something for us this summer. I just As I was digging into this psalm and thinking about some of the psalms that we've already preached through and looking at the psalms we're going to hit, um, I, just, I really believe that the Holy Spirit of God has something to say to Mosaic Church in 2021. And it has something to do with really grabbing onto or seeing this reality of who God is, his greatness, his glory, his holiness. And that excites me. And that's something that I'm really, I've really been encouraged by. Um, but this psalm is, it's really the ultimate call to worship, is what Psalm 24 is. And that's why we, we read it as our call to worship. It's a ceremonial psalm. And what you find in this psalm is a symbolism of a pilgrimage that an ancient Israelite would make to go and worship God in the temple and to enter into his presence. And it really helps us understand what, what, it, what are we doing when we worship. And it's a great way for us to really, really rethink and refocus our spiritual lives as we come to the, the, the discipline of corporate worship, but also individual worship. And there's a historical, some of the, the portions of this psalm, there's a historical reality. And many commentators, thinkers, say that this was actually uh, remembering a real time when King David was entering the temple, bringing back the Ark of the Covenant, which was the literal presence of Yahweh with his people. And so let's read it. Again, I want to read it over you. And um, if you want to close your eyes and listen, if you want to open up your Bible and follow along, um, I want to read this. And as I read it, uh, something we do every Sunday is I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'll invite you to respond, saying, thanks be to God. And this is a way that we confirm together that God has spoken. He has not left us in silence, uh, that he has something for us this morning. So this is a Psalm of David. Let's read this. The earth 
is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hand, clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause and want to acknowledge your presence. You are not detached from what we're doing here. You are not um, uninvested in what we are about to do. And we ask that you would move in greater favor as we seek to hear from your word, as we seek to be a people that are striving to grab onto the realities of who you are and what you have done in the world. And so I ask that you would fill this space freshly with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, have your way with us. I don't know what people are coming in here with, but you do. And you know what they need to hear, what they need to do, and we want to open ourselves up to you, God. And so we ask that you would move and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, it's Tuesday, and I'm getting ready to go to lunch. And I get in my car, and I start it, and I start driving out of the parking lot, and my car dies. Like, the steering wheel goes dead, the engine shuts off, the wheels weren't working, and all of these alerts just start popping up. And I was like, man, I didn't even, like, I don't even, I've never heard of some of these things. Like, all these things were just flashing. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? And so, you know, I tried to fix it. I tried to open the hood. I'm not a car guy, but I, you know, I like to troubleshoot a little bit. I went online. I took out the manual, tried to figure out, hey, maybe I can just, like, maybe it's kind of like my, my iPhone. I shut it off and then turn it back on. It'll just, it'll fix itself, right? It didn't work. And I eventually call a tow truck and I go back in to the office and there's a big window. And so I'm working, hungry, because I haven't eaten lunch. And I'm staring at my dead car in the parking lot. And I feel like some of us think of our spiritual lives in that way. Some of us, maybe we're going through a hard season or we're in this season of just, we just don't feel anything. We don't desire God like we used to. My car was working fine the week before, but all of a sudden it just, it just dies. And sometimes we get to these places where it just feels like our spiritual life is stalling out. We're overcome with apathy. We're overcome with cynicism. And we're faced with all of the brokenness around us. 
and all these alerts start going off. I can't remember the last time that I really prayed or spent time before the Lord. I can't remember the last time God actually showed up in my Bible study and I was moved. My neighbor just asked me a question, like basic question, and I didn't have a response. And we can become concerned and confused, very, very much like I was. My, my car, like it's not an old car. <laughs> it works great. But all of a sudden, it just quit working. Psalm 24 has something for us this morning. And if you are at a place where you feel stalled out, where you feel a sense of apathy, when we start talking about Jesus and the Bible, and you just, you say, ah, I remember when that meant something to me. I remember when I was filled with spiritual energy and vigor and excitement and joy. But I'm not that way. If you're there, Psalm 24 has something for you. Because Psalm 24 is trying to wake us up. Psalm 24 is reminding us of the vital necessity of beholding God and his glory. Because the reality is we, we behold brokenness every day. We see it in our own hearts, whether it's the apathy we feel or the pride or the crippling shame that we feel or it's all around us in our relationships. There's brokenness. There's brokenness. We turn on the news, there's brokenness. It's everywhere. And if we're not careful, if we have not remembered the necessity of beholding God in his glory, that brokenness can erode our devotion to the Lord. That brokenness can erode our spiritual experience with God. And only until we behold him Will he give us the perspective and the energy we need to face the brokenness? And so this, this muscle, this spiritual muscle of beholding God and his glory, it can atrophy. And some of us, if you're experiencing spiritual apathy, your muscle may have at atrophy. But there's hope because just like the muscles in our body that atrophy, there's healing, there's strengthening. And that's what Psalm 24 is going to help us with, is what does it look like to strengthen that spiritual muscle? What does it look like to behold God in his glory? And just like the pilgrimage of an ancient Israelite to worship, we're invited in Psalm 24 to walk the spiritual pilgrimage of rediscovering God in his glory and meeting him. And it starts with recognizing all the glimpses of glory all around us. The psalmist starts in verse one, reminding us of this reality. He says, the earth is the Lord's and fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth and everyone in it is the Lord's because he created it. He designed it. He has dominion over it. It reflects something of who God is and what he is like. There are whispers and glimpses of God's goodness, God's beauty, God's sense of purpose and creative power all around us. And this, the psalmist is inviting us to pay attention and to see those things. Verse two has some weird language though, right? He founded it upon the seas and upon the rivers. 
What's going on there? Is this just ancient cosmology? Because this was, in the, in the ancient world, there were cultures who believed that the world was created on water. That if you dug down under the earth, you would find water. But most commentators agree that the psalmist is actually doing something with this language. That he's using these terms in a demythologized and personified sense to depict the Lord's creative power against a world of chaos. The seas in the ancient world were known as a chaotic place, a place of darkness. And what the psalmist is trying to help us understand is that the Lord, when he creates, he subdues chaos. That God's creative power and design is set against a world of chaos. And what that means is there are examples of God's design, God's order, God's beauty all around us. Just look at creation. The rising of the sun each day. It sets, the moon lights up the night. And the way our bodies respond to that light. It's fascinating. There's a moment when I'm making my coffee and I can look out the window in my kitchen and on some mornings, I can catch a glimpse of the sunrise. And it's beautiful. It's subtle, but it's there. And there's plenty of brokenness in the creation, right? We have done, in some ways, a bad job caring for the earth. And there's brokenness there. And we need to look at that and face that. But we don't want to miss the glimpses of beauty, the glimpses of order. You think about the human body and the way the human body works and even the immune system. My son was sick for three weeks and he had a fever. Just, he would get a fever and then he would get better. He would get a fever and his body's fighting the infection. It's, it's ordered. There's a design there. It's a glimpse of glory. Where I... I watch all the time in our church a mother embracing a child. And there's something so beautiful about that embrace. And many of us, sadly, know the brokenness of that relationship. And it can be easy to cast that over our lives and over our perspective. And what the psalmist is saying, don't miss the moments when you see a mother or a parent Embrace a child, and there is something so ordered and good and beautiful about what's happening in that moment. And we're encouraged to see the glimpses of God's glory all around us. And the question is are you paying attention? Or are you so consumed with all the brokenness around you? And some of us are walking in great brokenness. Some of us are suffering significantly. But if we don't grab on to God and his glory, we can begin to miss how to handle that brokenness. And so if you're struggling, take a walk. Take a walk and seek God. Ask God, show me a glimpse of your glory. Show me something. There was a a, a little... Uh, baby, uh, the Hardy's baby Shep, uh, towards the end of the service, he was, crawl, he was trying to crawl up on the stage. I was just like, that's beautiful. It's so cool to see all the little ones 
and all that is good and right in the creation. And it's part of the process of starting on this pilgrimage. It's trying to grab onto, okay, there's glimpses of God's glory, and I want to I see those even as everything in my life, in my heart, and in my relationships feels like it's broken. I want to I see the redemptive aspects of God's created order. And there's also a prerequisite. There's a prerequisite to beholding God's glory. And the psalmist gets at that in verse 3. And he asks this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, does not lift up his soul to what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Part of the pilgrimage is preparation, is preparing to behold God in his glory. And David makes a strong connection here between worship and personal holiness. Between worship and personal holiness. Who will enter the place where God dwells? The one who has a clean hand and a pure heart. The one who has not lifted his soul to what is false. Who has not given over his heart to all of the idols that are grabbing and vying for his attention. Now it's important for us to catch really what's going on with these questions. This is not a spiritual metal detector that we put at the entrance uh, before you come to church. And so if you walk in and there's any sense of impurity and unrighteousness, go beep, beep, sorry, you, you can't come in, not allowed. That's not what these questions are intended to do. These questions in verse three, they're designed to cause the worshiper who seeks to enter to reflect humbly on their need for repentance and God's mercy. And the prep work that we're being invited into is to acknowledge our utter dependence on the grace of God. To recognize that we need God to show up. We need God to show up. When we come to worship, we need God to worship, to show up. And if he doesn't show up, we, there's no hope. And that's why we gather. That's why we look at his word. That's why we sing songs that are influenced by the truths of Scripture. Because we want to do everything we can do so that God will show up. That's why we worship. And essentially what the psalmist is helping us understand is he's saying, hey, if you want to find truth, if you want to discover blessing and you want to have this powerful experience in worship, become a person who seeks God with everything you have. Become a person who yearns and longs for God and recognizes that there's no way that I will ever get to that place of experiencing a holy and righteous God unless he moves towards me, unless he shows me mercy and grace. And friends, this, this is the battleground for spiritual apathy. If you're having a hard time, if you don't feel like God has met you in weeks, This is the invitation, is to seek him. You feel far and detached from God, chase him down, run after him. If you feel defeated by besetting sin, go to war against your sin. Jesus says, cut off and pluck out. And there is a gospel promise in there, right? Because none of us would make it. (laughs) We'd be dismembered. But there's an aggression in there. Cut off and pluck out. 
Because the deeper and deeper and deeper we go towards personal holiness, the deeper and deeper and deeper we go in intimacy and fellowship with God. That's the principle. And that's what we're being invited into. And I have to tell you, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about where we are. Most of us have grown up in a gospel-centered generation. And it has been a good redirection against legalism. But I'm concerned that we have missed. I'm concerned for myself and for our church that we have missed a vital aspect of the Christian life. And that is the aspect of pursuing obedience and holiness. The aspect of striving and working to fight, to hear God, to seek God, to know God deeply. And more specifically, it's a concern that we've lost sight of our responsibility in cultivating the spiritual life. And there's an author who wrote on this topic. He wrote a book called A Hole in Our Holiness. And he says, as gospel Christians, we should not be afraid of striving, fighting, and working. These are good Bible words. Jerry Bridges writes, no one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in their life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on their own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. There's a spiritual responsibility. Yes, the gospel is a gift of grace. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor, to earn his love. It's all a gift of grace. And when we trust in the finished work of Jesus, we are reborn by the spirit of God. And that identity is secure. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, I will raise up on the last day. No one will pluck them from my hand, is what the song says that we just sang. There is security there. But there also is an expectation that we are going to put the gift to work. That we are going to put the grace of God to work in our lives. Think about when you, you gave a gift to someone. If they took the gift and said, oh, thank you. That, that's so nice. I love this. I really do. And then they went home and put it on their shelf or put it in the junk drawer. We wouldn't say that they loved that gift. They might fake it to your face, but they don't love it. A way that we demonstrate our love of the gift of grace is by putting it to work in our lives. By obeying and cultivating holiness. Because the New Testament is filled with imperatives, with commands. But there's a gospel pattern. Oftentimes, the New Testament writers remind us of who we are in Christ, our identity, the indicatives of the gospel. And then they say, and so, because of that, do this. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Romans 12, at the end of this masterful expression of the gospel in Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Tim Keller is right. The default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. So every morning we wake up, we are going to try and work our way into God's love. And we need to redirect that. We need to correct that. But after we do that work, we need to fight for holiness. We need to strive for obedience. Because when we do that, we will experience a deeper and greater intimacy with God. And ultimately, God shows up. And when God shows up, it's the best part. That's what the psalmist says. When God shows up, that's the best part. We want to beware of spiritual passivity, of believing that, oh, this is all God's work. There's nothing I can do. We have a role to play, and we want to work towards that. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the movement of a life and a heart and a mind to God. Because when we do that, he shows up. He meets us there. And when God shows up, it's the best part, right? You've all had, most of you have had that experience. When you're in a passage and you didn't even expect it, and all of a sudden, bam, there it is. Wow, I needed to hear that. Or you're praying and all of a sudden, you're just, you're just overwhelmed by the gravity and weight of God's love for you. Wow, that changes everything for me. The second half of the psalm is an anthem for the entrance of God. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up, look, that the king of glory may come in. Who who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, lift them up. He's coming The king of glory is coming in. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The Lord, the king of glory, he arrives. And it's the best part. And in this psalm, we've been introduced to the creator king, but in this section, we're we're introduced to the warrior king. So God, he, he subdues chaos and creates a world of order and beauty but he also does battle against the the workers of of darkness and chaos and brokenness. And the origins of this section in the psalm are likely uh, a ceremony that was uh, part of David's entrance back to the city of Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was seen as the presence of Yahweh with his people. And, you know... I was thinking about this and reading about this and I, you kind of feel bad for King David because he just led the army and they're coming back to the city and who is everyone praising? Not the king. <laughs> this was what made the people of Israel distinct among the nations. That ultimately they believed our king is the Lord. That the human king is really just a delegated authority given to us to represent our king, Yahweh, who is holy and righteous and blameless. 
Who is this king of glory? I've, I've been greatly helped this week by the work of an Old Testament theologian, um, Dr. Alan Ross. He wrote a biblical theology on worship. It's fantastic. And listen to what he says. He says, to speak of God's holiness is to say that there is no one like him, that he is absolute power and perfection. To speak of God's glory is to say that he is preeminent in existence and that the whole universe is filled with evidence of his importance and sublimity. Holiness represents a summation of all that God is, all of his character and his attributes. God is holy. He's set apart from all that is, exists in the created order. Well, what sets him apart? He's all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere. He has no beginning and no end, and all that he does is righteous. He is, in essence, righteousness, good, just, and holy. But to speak of his glory is basically saying that he is the most important person in the whole universe. Whole universe. That God is glorious. And the word means weight. He is so important. He is more important than any, anyone else in the entire created order. And as God's new covenant people, we, we have a greater definition, a greater picture of this king of glory in the person of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the creator king and he is the warrior king. And he has gone to battle against sin, death, and the devil. And he has come back victorious. But he does not wage war with a sword. He wages war with a cross. And he is victorious in this. Philippians 2 says, he's humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He is worthy of his name. We just sang that song that we're saying that he is the king of glory. He is set apart and different from all that we understand in a world filled with brokenness. He is, he's alive. He is there. And he cares about you. He's invested in your holiness. He's invested in your life. And when we become so consumed with all the brokenness around us, we lose sight of that. We lose sight of a God who is so holy and glorious that he is exalted above all. And that never changes. But we lose sight of the reality that he cares. If you are in Christ and you are reborn by the spirit of God, the king of glory cares for you. He's invested in you. And this this is good news. And when Jesus shows up, it's the best part right? This is the best part. And so the question we want to ask this morning is, how are you doing? Do you feel anything? Are you stirred? Some of you are stirred. I can see it. Some of you, eh. 
I've heard, I've heard that before. Whatever. Have you stalled out? Have you lost any kind of experiential knowledge of the God who reigns in heaven? If that's you, go to him. Go to him. We believe, I believe with my whole heart, God is real. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's alive. And the spirit is with us. And when we go to God in faith, in honesty, in holiness and humility, he shows up. I have, I have seen time and time and time again, he shows up. He meets us. We had a training on Tuesday night and uh, the trainer had us meditate on Romans 5. And the translation he used was the message translation by Eugene Peterson. And there was a phrase in there that just wrecked me. (laughs) Um, And it was this. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. This is the gospel. And when we feel like we've stalled out and when we are not stirred, the only thing we can do is go to him and open our door. And what we realize, he'd been waiting for us the whole time. His door's wide open. He's like, come on in. Let's have lunch. Tell me about what is weighing you down. Tell me about your sorrow. Tell me about your pain. Because I want to meet you in it. And I want to experientially wrap you up and hug you. Eventually made it to the shop where my car was. And um, I was like, hey, guys, have you taken a look at my pilot? Because if, if this thing is broken, I got to get three car seats out of that car and put it in this car to go pick up my kids. And they were like, no, we haven't looked at it yet, but we'll, we'll look at it. And they pull it into the garage. And the manager comes back to me and he says, <laughs> he says, could you go get some gas? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I towed my car to the shop and there's no gas in the tank. And he said, yeah, well, we could go get it, but you'll have to pay for it. <laughs> and I was like, I'll go get it. And I, very frustrated, went and got gas and was back in the actual shop and put the gas in the car. And uh, the mechanic had his computer hooked up to the computer in my car and uh, it still was broken. So I was like, okay, good. Like, like that would have been really embarrassing. Um, but I'm still worried about my car. And the manager is there, the mechanic's there, I'm there. And the mechanic looks at the manager and goes, hey, I'm coming back with ECM failure. And they're both like, oh, no, oh, oh, man. Oh, and I'm like, what? <laughs> What's wrong? I had no clue. I don't even know if that's the right acronym. And they were like, oh, it's back ordered. This is the main operating system in your car. It's going to be thousands of dollars, and it's, it's going to be out for seven weeks. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, really, are you sure? Because I, I changed the battery last week. Um, you know, and he's like, he's like, we'll work with you. I'm like, thanks. He's like, let me try a few more things. And so he shuts the car off and goes uh, back 
to get some tools and he comes back and he turns the car on and it's perfectly fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. I've been driving it and nothing wrong with it. And this is our spiritual reality. We, we feel dead. Like we feel like our spiritual life is dead. We've stalled out. And we're looking at our spiritual life and just like, man, I used to really be stirred by these things, but I'm not anymore. I, I used to actually believe this stuff, but I don't. I, I really, deep down, if I'm honest, I don't. And what we realize is when we go to God and he meets us there, we realize that there's actually, there's nothing wrong with it. We just lost sight of the king of glory. We lost sight of who God is and all of his being and all of his essence and what he has done in the world. And the invitation this morning is to walk that pilgrimage, to seek God, to go to him and to be stirred by who he is and what he has done on our behalf. I'll close with a quote from Robert Murray McShane. And this is a quote that just helps me often when I get stuck. He says, For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus, and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean caves? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. Let's pray. God, we, we love you. And we, we want to love you more. And we thank you that your love is not dependent on our love that your salvation is not dependent on how well we obey, how well we pursue holiness and fellowship with you. You have come near and you have made a way for us to experience reconciliation, fellowship, and intimacy with you. Wake us up, God. Teach us the way back to you. We love you and we trust you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're gonna move into a time of celebrating communion and so if you would stand and the elements should be around either on the floor or on the chair next to you. This is a meal that Jesus established in his earthly ministry and he did so because he knew that we would be prone to forget who he is and what he has done, that we would be prone to just to be so overcome with all of the brokenness in our lives and in the world. And we do need to deal with that. We need to be honest. We don't want to deny that that's there. But we always want to remember who Jesus is and what he has done. And he instituted this meal on the night that he was betrayed by one of his friends that he had loved, spent a lot of time with, that man betrayed him and sold him out. And Jesus knew, he knew where he was headed. The disciples didn't. He knew that he was heading to the cross. And he created this meal as an act of love so that we would remember 
what he has done for us. And he took the bread and he said, this is the bread. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, bread from heaven. Let's do this together. And then he took the cup of the new covenant. And the Old Testament blood sacrifices filled the temple. And Jesus knew as he held up this cup that he was going to the cross and his blood would be spilled. And he did that because he was making a way for sinners to experience reconciliation with God. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this together as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus, the cup of the new covenant. This is part of our beholding of God, remembering who Jesus is and what he has done. And Paul, when he is talking about this meal, he goes on and he says, for as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. And we do that together. We proclaim it to ourselves and to one another and to our city that the Lord has died for sinners to experience reconciliation and fellowship with him. And we cry out, Lord, come. We love you. Lord, come and meet us today.